If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 8. So we are in the 8th chapter of Daniel. Um, We are knee-deep into prophecy. Um, Some of you guys may be coming just to watch me waddle through it, right? Um, The last last week, it was Father's Day, and we took a little bit of time off, and we we had a little Father's Day message. And um, the week before that, we talked about a winged lion, a bear with three ribs hanging out of his teeth, a leopard with four heads and four wings, and an unspeakable beast. And that was Daniel's first vision. This morning we're going to look at Daniel's second vision. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, see how muddy we can make the waters, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. Um, God, I, I pray that you be with us in the next few moments. And as we look at these, um, this, this second vision of Daniel, God, I pray that you just help us to, um, to try and grasp what's being said here, Lord. And I pray that, that although some of this is way over at least my head, that you help us to come to a point where we can grab something this morning um, that could be applicable to us today in our lives today. Um, help it not just be a history lesson, but a life-changing lesson. Lord, I pray that you um, allow us to be faithful to your word. I pray that everything that we say, everything that we do, um, everything that I talk on this morning is, is rooted in your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that you do penetrate our hearts. Um, I pray that you do set a fire in our soul. And I pray that you help change us, help us to be um, very serious about the time in which we live. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you've done. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, next week will be 4th of July weekend, and many of you will be recovering from fireworks probably. Be careful. Don't get too close, all right? Hopefully the next time I see you all have 10 fingers and 10, ten toes. Um, I'm not sure who will be here or who won't be here next week. Next week, we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of a break from Daniel, too, and, um, and we're going we're gonna to spend some time just kind of maybe remembering our country a little bit and, then, and remembering some of the, the biblical foundations that we were, we were started on. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, and um, we're not going to dwell on this this morning, but um, this last week was, was challenging. Um, the other night... Uh, when the Supreme Court ruling came out on the um, same-sex marriage decision, I, I struggled sleeping that night. Um, and, and, and hear me when I say it's, it's, this is, I, I don't ever want to come across as one who hates anyone for choices that they make. Um, it's one thing when an individual makes a choice. I, I think it's another thing when a nation celebrates a choice. And um, I turned the news on, and um, when I saw a picture of the White House with rainbow-colored lights lit up on it, my heart sank, and my stomach was full of knots. And, and there was a party that wanted to address it this morning, but I just I don't know that I could do it in the right heart and right spirit. And so I kind of needed a little bit more time to, to digest it. I don't know that next week will be any better. <laughs> Who knows what will happen this week, right? 
but I think it's something that we, from a, from a biblical standpoint, need to just talk about in, in relation to our country. And, and some of it, I think, for us as a church and our study right now as we talk about prophecy, I think kind of aligns itself a little bit. And, and so, anyways, next week we're, we're going to, we'll take a little bit of a break there. And I figure, too, most people won't be here on 4th of July, so if I get myself in trouble, most of you guys will be gone, right? So, um, anyways, we'll see. So anyways, this morning we're going to get into Daniel chapter 8. And what we're going to try and do, we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. And, and sometimes when we, when, we, when I speak, I'll read the whole thing and we try and jump back and dissect it. This morning we're going to kind of look at it, kind of go verse by verse. We're going to try and give a little bit of, of some history to it and kind of explain it as we go. And then I'm, I'm going to hopefully help us find some application today. And as I, I said in my prayer, sometimes when we talk about prophecy, we get caught up in all the stuff that's going to happen one day and we forget to consider how we can use this today, right? And so, so I don't want us to just get our, our minds drifting to somewhere in the future, but I want us to, to figure out how we can take this and apply it to our lives today, what we can walk away with. And so, um, so we're going to do our best to do that. So just as a point of, uh, of, of a reminder here, we have this this kind of reoccurring theme. It goes back to, to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And if you recall, Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. Nobody can interpret it. So Daniel finally arrives. He interprets this dream. And this dream is this statue. And it's a, a statue of, of, a, of a man or of something like that. But what's different about the statue is it, it's, there's different type of metals that make up the statue. There's a, the head that was made out of gold. The, the arms and chest were made out of silver. Kind of the, the, the waist was made out of bronze. And then the, the legs were made out of iron. And it went down to the feet. And the feet were kind of a mixture of iron and clay. And we talked about then that this, that this dream uh, was a, a dream of this Gentile um, history, if you will, that started, that was about to, that had already begun. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was this first great king of, of Babylon. And, and Daniel tells him that this head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar, represented Babylon. They were going to be like the greatest nation in world history. And then from there it went down to this, this chest and the arms of silver. And we talked about how like, the, the two arms kind of represented these two nations that came, came together, the Medes and the Persians. And they would, they would come together, and Cyrus was the leader, and Cyrus was, was mixed. He had a, a father who was a Mede, I believe, and his mother was Persian. And so he was able to unite both these groups, and they came, and they, had, they launched a surprise attack. And we, we studied that in uh, Daniel chapter 5 with the whole handwriting on the wall. And then one day they would be replaced, and um, the next part was in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was the waste of, of bronze, and that represented the Grecian Empire, the Greeks, and then the legs of iron was the Roman Empire. And then we went back into last week, or last time, Daniel chapter 7, and the view changes, where in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's looking at this from man's perspective, and man, when he views his own leadership, when he views his own empires, when he views his own, their own nations, he thinks of all these precious, these good things. And so that dream, to a certain extent, was, was from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. And then we see in Daniel chapter 7, those same empires from God's view. And their description is much, much different. Rather than this, this head of gold, it was this lion with wings. And he talks about the wings being plucked off, and that's a, a symbol there of, of Nebuchadnezzar himself, how, how Nebuchadnezzar, remember in, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, how he went insane in those seven years 
He walked like a beast, and so his wings were, were plucked away, and he was humbled. And then uh, the, the second beast was this bear with three ribs, and, and in that we made reference, we understood that that was a symbol of the Mede and Persian Empire. That became this huge mammoth empire. Like they estimate that the army was over two and a half million men. And so they lumbered, and they were so forceful. And, and in the description in Daniel chapter 7, it talks about these three ribs, and those three ribs, we believe, represents the first three nations that, that they overtook to complete this, this empire. And then the next one was this leopard with four heads and four wings, which sounds crazy, right? But, but in that, it represented the Greeks. And the Greeks were much smaller than the Medes and the Persians. So they, their, their army was estimated to begin with about thirty to 35,000 people men. But be, the result of them being smaller, they were swifter, they were fast. And, and their leader, Alexander the Great, was one of the most brilliant military strategists to probably to, to ever walk the face of the earth. And so with his, his speed and his skill and, and his determination, they go and they conquer. And shortly after, Alexander the Great dies and, and his, his empire is split up into four by his four generals. And so the four heads and the four wings represent how it splits. And the final beast that we talked about in Daniel chapter 7 was this, this unspeakable beast. It was, it, was, it was so terrifying to Daniel that he couldn't even describe it. He couldn't even think of another animal to, to, to compare it to. And he talked about how it had teeth of iron, had these, these ten horns. And, and then out of those ten horns, one grew, an eleventh little horn grew up. And it was this crazy thing. And we realized that it was there that, that he was compare, or he's talking about the Roman Empire. And so what's fascinating about this is, is if you recall when we started Daniel chapter 2, I, I made mention that the first chapter of Daniel was written in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the common language of the day of the Gentiles. And as we get into Daniel chapter 8, the language goes back to Hebrew. And what most commentators will tell you is the reason it shifts from, from, seven, from 2 to 7, it's this idea that it's being spoken through, it's being looked through the lens of, of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Well, now as we get into chapter 8, the focus returns back to Israel, returns back to the Jews and, and how God's going to deal with them and help them and protect them. So all that said, here we're going to go. We're going to start up here in Daniel chapter 1. Okay, in the third year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, or of, of King Belshazzar, which again, if you remember, is, is um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. This is the same one who would be in Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall, right? Okay, so, so in the third year, this is two years after Daniel's first vision. Daniel, after which appeared to me at first. Verse 2 says, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision I was at the Uli Canal. This is what's interesting in this. So we have Daniel who starts off in this, this vision that he has. And, and, and the Bible references these markers. So as we read this today, maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, right? So Daniel in his falls asleep, whatever, has this vision, and he's at this spot. Now, I don't know if he was literally taken there or if this is just in his dream or what, but, but this is what's amazing. This this area, Susa, this citadel, at this point during Daniel's lifetime is a non-factor. It's a, it's a little hick town. 
But one day it's going to grow up to be like the, the, the capital of the Persian Empire. And the Greeks will, will the, all, the, guy, all, the, all the, the leaders of the Greek Empire, that's where they're going to hang out. Um, this would be like um, somebody, when, when, when the pilgrims are going across on the Mayflower, that would be like somebody in England during that day having a dream of sitting inside the White House today. Okay? He's fast-forwarding. He's leaping into the future, and he's put in this place that's this, this great area, this great citadel, this, this great um, area of the kings. And so here comes the dream. I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. Here we go with more animals, right? They're not quite as weird today. So there's a ram standing on the bank of the canal, and it had two horns, and both were high, and one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And so and we're going to see God explain this towards the, end of the channel, towards the end of the chapter, but here we have this ram. It has two horns, and, and it explains us how one of those horns becomes greater than the other. And this right here, this, this picture, this ram, was going to represent the Mede Persian Empire. This is what's, again, I find this interesting, is, is notice how he doesn't begin with the Babylonian Empire. Like, he's living in the, the Babylonian Empire is still the great empire. This is, this, this time when the Medes and the Persians take over Babylon, it's, it's not for another 12 to 14 years. Like, this is, there's still a little group now. They're, they're a little pain wandering around. It's a small group of people. They're not even unified right now. I mean, they're, they're all doing their own thing. And he talks about how there's this, this ram, that, and it has two horns, and one's going to eventually become stronger than the other. And, and history tells us, we don't even look in the Bible, but history tells us that although at first the Medes were the strong of the two groups, but eventually the Persians become the dominant group. And so we have this, this picture there. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. Notice it, it doesn't say everywhere. And if, again, history tells us that, that the Medes never chose to go east. And no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And so you again, again, we remember the, the dream that Daniel had in the last chapter of this bear that became huge, it became powerful. They, they devoured lands. They, they captured um, empires. Verse 5 says, And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a, consp- a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he ran to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue him, rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the winds, towards the four winds of heaven. And so you have this ram who becomes powerful. 
And out of nowhere comes this goat with one horn. Uh, It's interesting because the previous illustration there uh, of the Greek empire was this leopard. And today we know leopards as being really fast, right? I I don't know that I've ever seen a goat run before. Maybe they do. I'm not sure. But he talks in the the description of this. uh, He runs so fast as if if the the hooves don't even touch the ground. And he's got this one horn. And again, as we'll see it towards the end of this chapter, that one horn is going to represent their first king. And that first great king was Alexander the Great. This is what's, what's so amazing. So, so later on, this is just a side note. So when Alexander the Great is going and he's conquering land, and, and, and understand that like, when he gets the reign of the kingdom, when he begins, he's about 20 years old. Within six years, by the age of 26, he conquers Babylon, the gold head, right? I mean, the lion with wings, the largest, or the greatest empire in human history. Hold up. I'm getting mixed up here. No. He conquers the, the, the Medes, the bear, the huge, two million army. And as he goes and he conquers and he gets to Jerusalem, and, and rumors are swirling that Alexander the Great's coming. As he arrives at Jerusalem, he's greeted by the high priest. And the high priest pulls out not an ESV version of the Bible, but he pulls out the book of Daniel and he shows him that passage right there and lets him know that he was in the word of God. And, and history tells us we know that he protected Jerusalem. He, he left kind of Jerusalem to do their own thing. I mean, think about the, how, how, how awesome that would be to, to, to realize that you're in the Bible. And so by the age of 26, he conquers the Medes and the Persians, in six years, this huge empire. By the age of 28, 29, he's conquered the known world. Like his kingdom goes from the Mediterranean Sea to India. Um, history again tells us like he, he, he would cry himself to sleep because he had nothing left to do. He had conquered everyone. Uh, it was during that time that, that because he had nothing left to do, because he had nothing left to conquer, um, he began to fall into this drunken stupor. He, he returns to Babylon. He throws this big party. It gets hammered that night. gets drunk, and, and it's storming outside. It's wet, and he, he stays outside. He gets wet. He falls asleep in his clothes, and eventually he gets sick, and he dies within three days. See, he himself is never overtaken. He's never conquered. He dies. And once he dies, um, he's got no rightful heir. He has no children to, to take his place. And so they go to, to Alexander the Great, wanting to know who should be in line, who should take over. And his response is, give it to the strong. And so they end up dividing this, this empire into, amongst the, the, the four top generals. And that's where we get this idea of these four horns that will grow up. Verse 9 says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, 
toward the east and toward the glorious land. It was great, it grew great, and even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Um, so in this, we see these four horns, and, and Daniel in his vision sees that one of these, one of these, out of one of these, one grows stronger. And for us not to get lost when we see this, this term host of heaven and we see the, the, the term um, stars, those were symbols of Israel. And so Daniel sees this vision that, that this one king will rise up and begin to trample upon the Jews. Verse 11 says, um, And it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. And it will throw truth onto the ground. And it will act and prosper. And so we, we have this, this horn that, that comes up. And this horn represents another individual. And this is what I think is kind of interesting in this, as in this eighth chapter. We have different individuals that are, are seen and identified. Alexander the Great, um, the first section um, of three and four is, is typically referred to as Cyrus the king of, of Persia. And in this section, verses nine through 14, this one horn was this, in, verse, in chapter seven, that little horn that we talked about was the Antichrist. This isn't the same Antichrist here. This, this right here in his dream, God's giving Daniel an example. This little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus would become this great empire, emperor. And he was one of the most notorious, cruelest tyrants, probably in history. He begins to rise to power, and, and in there he kind of gives this description of these things that he does. But what's interesting is, is he takes over for his brother. His brother was murdered, and most people think that, that um, Antiochus had some role to do with this. Um, his, his brother, Seleucid, had an, a son, Demetrius, who was supposed to be the heir but he was held hostage in Rome. And so Antiochus becomes this, this emperor. One of the things that he hated, though, was Jews. He wanted to have this one unified religion. He goes off to war at one point, and um, as he comes, becomes into leadership, he, begins, he, put, he, puts, he takes away the Jewish um, high priest in the temple, and he inserts his own person a guy who had bribed himself into the position. So he goes off, Antiochus goes off to war, and rumors begin to swirl back. Like, they lose this battle, and, and, and these rumors come back to Jerusalem that Antiochus had died. And so they ran off the high priest, and the Jews brought in the person they wanted to be the high priest once again. Well, unfortunately for them, um, those rumors proved to be false, and Antiochus returns. And once he realizes what the Jews had done, he was furious. And so he goes and he desecrates the temple. Um, he, he puts his, his person back in charge. Um, 
to the point where he begins to change what the Jews can and can't do. Basically, outlawing Judaism. But not just giving these laws, but he took their place, their home, their church, if you will. And he goes into it, and he goes to the Holy of Holies, like the most holy place. Like we read about this in the Old Testament. This is the place where the high priest would go, and he would actually see the Shekinah glory of God. And he takes out the Jewish altar, and he puts in this statue of Zeus. Some will say it's either Zeus or a replication of himself. And they began to throw um, sacrifices to this other God, and they began to sacrifice pigs against, completely against the Jewish belief system. And they took the blood and they began to wipe it on the walls. Um, as he entered into Jerusalem to, to claim this, this temple, he entered in the Sabbath and he brought an army of over 20,000 people and he killed almost all of the men. And then he took all the women and the children as slaves. The men who were able to survive and, and escape, they went and found this Jewish leader who was creating this army. It was this kind of ragtag group. This guy's name is Judas Maccabeus. And as we get to this part here, this, this last part when in verse 12, it says, and a host will be given over to it together in the regular burnt offering because of transgressions. It will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. And what Daniel sees there is, at one point later in history, Judas Maccabeus and his group, the Maccabeans, will come and they'll conquer. They'll, they'll take over the temple. We're all familiar with the holiday um, Hanukkah, right? Um, that Hanukkah holiday is meant to celebrate the rededication of the temple. Here's what's interesting. So we keep going in this verse. Okay, verse 13 says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the other one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that make desolate, and the giving over to the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? So he's like, okay, so how long before the temple's bad, and then we get to clean it up, and it begins to become good again? How long? What's the time frame? Help us out here. And he says, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be destroyed to its rightful state. So here's what's kind of cool about the Bible. Now, mind you, this is all stuff Daniel's seeing in the future, right? One of the things that we can take away from prophecy is this. To a great extent, much of what we read here in Daniel has already taken place. You know, aside from what, as we get to some of this other stuff at the very end, the tribulation, but aside, we, this stuff about the Babylonians, Babylon, when Daniel sees this vision, Babylon is the only great empire. But soon after, they're going to fall. That's already happened. After that, after the Medes and the Persians, and they, they have this, they're going to be in power for, for, for a while, a long time. But then they end up falling to the Greeks. Already happened. Alexander the Great. Been here, done that. And then the Roman Empire. All these things have already taken place. And so when we get to this idea, this 2,300 evenings and mornings, your Bible might say 2,000 days or 2,300 days. What's interesting about this is from what history tells us, the, 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 the first time that Antiochus came into Jerusalem on his conquest until the day in which Judas Maccabeus came, conquered Jerusalem, 
and cleaned up the temple was 2,300 days. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool? Here we go, verse 15. And then and this is where we get the intro. This, so this, all that stuff, I've given you all this background. This is where God tells the story. So when Daniel and I, or when I, Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. We've all heard of Gabriel the angel before, right? Same Gabriel that would go to Zechariah and tell him about the birth, coming birth of John the Baptist. The same angel who would go to Mary and tell about the coming birth of Jesus. Here's the first time we see Gabriel in the Bible. So he goes, and Gabriel says, um, make this man understand the vision. So he came near when I, where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he made me stand up. And so Gabriel comes up, gives him this, begins to tell him this thing, and I don't know if he passes out. I don't know what happens. But he goes to Daniel, come on, this is important. Pay attention. Verse 19 said, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the, of the end. Verse 20 says, As for the ram that you saw, the two horns, these are the kings of the, Median, of, of the Media and Persia. Okay, so we already talked about that. Verse 21 says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place, of which four others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Verse 23. And this is where it begins to kind of shift. The gears begin to change. So those first two, we, he clearly identifies the Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire. Verse 23 says, At the later end of, the, of their kingdom, when the transgressions have, transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face... One who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall rise up against the prince of pieces and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. So this, this last passage there, the Antichrist is described. And it gives these different details of what he will be like, how he'll come to power. If you were to take this passage, those few verses, and, and then look into Revelation chapter 13, kind of helps clear up some of this of the mess here. We have this picture of this man who will come to power and he's going to be cunning. He's going to have be very eloquent and be very smart. He's not going to necessarily take the world by military force. Um, in fact, more than likely, especially as we read Revelation, uh, the reality is he probably is, uh, is a guy who's fantastic with economics and he's able to give the people what they want. When the tribulation occurs after the rapture of the church, you have this seven-year period. And those first three and a half years, it's going to be pretty all right. 
I mean, to the point where we talked about this last, like, he's able to bring all 10 of these empires together, even the Jews. Like, there, there's going to, he's going to be the guy that's going to walk in there and be able to definitively bring peace to the Middle East, or so they think. And three and a half years into it, it changes. He begins to show his true colors. This idea we see there about Verse 25, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. Uh, if you read in uh, Revelation, I think it's 13, 7, we, there's that description where um, during this time period, only those with the mark of the beast are going to be able to, to buy or sell goods. I mean, he talks here about this, without warning, he shall destroy many. And in there, he talks about destroying mighty men and the people who are the saints. Remember I told you before that word saints previously was a symbol of those in Israel, not of the Jews. First Holocaust back during World War II. We read about it in history, right? You guys read about it in history, right? They, they estimate during, during that Holocaust that one out of three Jews were killed. That's awful. That's stuff that we today can't even comprehend, right? The next Holocaust, the Holocaust during the tribulation, this time when the Antichrist shows his true colors, I believe it's in Zechariah, tells us that two out of three Jews will die. It's going to be something like we've never seen before. Now, the good thing for those who know Christ, we won't be here for it. But much like Antiochus, the picture to illustrate this coming person. Um, he will march into the temple. He will take the temple over. He'll, he'll resurrect a statue of himself and begin to declare people to worship him. He gets so bold that he thinks he's strong enough to conquer what is termed here as the prince of, prince, the prince of princes. And notice that prince in your Bible is capitalized. That's Jesus. He's so bold that he thinks he can conquer Jesus. And he declares war on him. And this is where we get what we know as Armageddon. But what's exciting for us is we know the whole story, don't we? And we know, just like Daniel knows here, where it says that he shall be broken, he being the Antichrist. But notice what it says at the end of verse 25. He says, but by no human hand. So this Antichrist, it's not like there's going to be another army that rises up. There's no other beast with five heads and six wings and two horns. There's nothing else. I mean, it's divine. It's God. It's Jesus coming. Verse 26 says, And the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. It ends with this, and Verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. And I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Okay, so we've gone through this dream and we've done our best to try and maybe clear up some of the waters, try and understand what these beasts were, what they mean, who they are, what's going to happen. So what does that mean for us today? Like, what can we take from this other than knowing that 
a ram represents this empire and a goat represents this empire. And we got one horn that represents Alexander the Great. And what, is it, what does this mean? Well, what can I do that today? Let me just try and leave you guys with, with a, a couple different things. Three that we'll try and tackle real, real fast. I think the first thing is this. I think we ought to remember and understand that God sees beyond what we can see. God sees way beyond what we can see. It's interesting, as I mentioned this before, when Daniel receives this second vision, there's still four, this is 14 years before the Medo-Persian Empire is empowered. It's 217 years before the battle between the Persians and the Greeks. About 200 years before, he, he mentions this great horn, he mentions Alexander the Great. This takes place about 200 years before Alexander the Great's even born. 230 years before he dies. This reference here, this idea, this picture that he paints of Antiochus, this, this takes place 386 years before that. God knows, God has a plan. It also helps us understand that God sends some warning signals our way. I know there have been times in my own life where I have seen, felt, or heard God's warnings. And there have been times when I've, I've ignored those warnings. I, I was reminded when I was thinking about it this week of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, when it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever one sows, that will he reap. We can pour a lot in. That's a message all by itself and will probably pop up next week. Those things that we sow, those things that we do, we, we're going to eventually reap it. And Sometimes we can fall in that trap where you know God is, is asking you to do something, calling you to do something, wanting you to do something, and we put it off and we just say, now is not the time. I will get to it later. I'm going to do my own thing, but one day I'll return back to it. Well, James 4.14 reminds us that life, it's like a vapor, a mist. It's not here very long. What I also love about this idea is God gives us instruction. Um, I, I was, I'm mindful of this, um, of marriage. I don't know if you're like me, but I find marriage difficult. 95% of the problem is me. Maybe more. Um, you know, when, when we open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, it gives us this, this definition, this, it gives us some parameters, right? Um, if, maybe if, you don't have to turn to it. I'll do it real fast. But Ephesians 5, you, it's, it's familiar, right? So those um, first 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Boom. We all love that verse, right? Okay. So wives, submit to your husbands. I'm going to get this thing real dirty real fast. Um, so wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Um, for, the hus- for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body and his, and his himself is his Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to everything, submit in everything to their husbands. All right, so that sounds real good, doesn't it? So sometimes what I've been guilty of, is I will focus in on those couple verses, right? I'm like, Courtney, listen, you are supposed to submit to me. This Bible says so. But sometimes we fail to keep on reading. And all of a sudden it goes, you know, God gives 
the wives like three verses, and then he gives the guys um, seven. I don't know, maybe we're slow, but verse 25 goes, but husband, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who li- loves his wife loves himself. And it keeps going, but, but what we understand is, is husbands, like when we come to that point where we, where we truly, genuinely like love our wives, I mean, to the point where we're doing things for our wives, where we're sacrificing for our wives, and our wives see that, then that whole submission part becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Now, when we get selfish, and when we, we put the barrier up, we start doing things the way we want to do things, and we, we start demanding things, it doesn't go so well, right? You go back to, to Genesis, and this is what's awesome, okay? So God gives us the clear definition, and he helps us out there. He gives us words to instruct us. Why is that so important? Well, you go back into Genesis and you talk about the fall of man. You understand. God tells Adam, listen, life is going to be hard from now on. You're going to have to work really, really hard. Like this nice little gardening, little rake thing you used to have in the Garden of Eden, no more. Like there's thorns, there's thistles. It will be hard. You're going to have to work your entire life. Life will be hard. That's your reward. Above that, when it goes to the woman, it says, okay, listen, Childbearing children, having, giving, having kids, it's going to hurt. <laughs> a lot. But that's not the only thing it mentions there. When you go past that, it also says that you're going to want to rule over the household. And so here in Ephesians, Paul's saying, listen, husbands, love your wives as I love the church, or as Christ loved the church, sacrifice for them, like adorn them, like lift them up, love them, and do things for them. And he reminds the wives, and, and wives, submit to your husband. As, as he's doing those things, like submit to him. And all, that's a perfect picture there, right? That's instruction from the Bible. God's plans don't always make sense. Uh, in Matthew 17, I think, there's this, illustration where the, the, the disciples need to pay a temple tax. And so God, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, you guys are fishermen, right? Well, go fish. And the first fish you catch, there's going to be a coin inside it and use that to pay temple tax. Doesn't make any sense, right? Disciples go and do. First fish they catch has a coin in his mouth. Remember that idea when Jesus shows up in John chapter 2 to this wedding and they run out of wine? Mom comes running to him, help, help, help. Can you make some wine? And he gives them this, these instructions to do with these cancers. It didn't make any sense at all, right? But they did it and were rewarded for it. And so I, first thing I want us to just be mindful of is this. God sees beyond what we can see. When God calls us to do something, we ought to do it. It may not make sense. It may not be fun. It may not be easy. But he sees beyond us. Real quick, the last two. God knows what we can handle and what we can't. And this deal with, with, with Daniel, if you go back to the previous chapter at the very end, 
um, in 728, and you might want to underline this in your, in your Bible. It says, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. Here you go. But I kept the matter in my heart. I kept the matter in my heart. That same statement we see in Luke chapter 2 by Mary. Remember after the wise men come and they bring all these gifts, and she's taking this, all, all of this in. And Luke chapter 2, it tells us that Mary pondered this and kept it in her heart. See, it was important. Now, when you read the Psalms, a lot of times you might see that phrase, Selah. Remember those, those Psalms, for the most part, were, were um, songs. But when that phrase, Selah, is inserted there, it's meant to be like a pause, and you need to think on this for a while. And here we have God who, who gives Daniel this stuff in Daniel chapter 7. And he knew exactly what Daniel can handle. And he gave him two years to ingest it and digest it and, and consider it and to ponder it and then returns. And then the last thing, what I hope we can take from this, comes from the very end of this. And this is what I would ask that you underline. Daniel 20, or 8, 27 says here, and, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And here we go. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Then I rose and went about the king's business. And I wrote this in my notes. Since God sees and knows, then we can be about his business. God sees. He knows. We don't see always. We don't always know. But we ought to do like Daniel did and be about the king's business. Be about God's business. This stuff about prophecy, it may feel weird to some, and, 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 and you may not understand it. And like I told you before, I don't always understand it. But I know this. Heaven's real. Hell's real. These empires have come. Some of them are gone. There's a time coming when Christ, Jesus Christ, will return. And he's going to take his church. He's going to take those who believe in him. He's going to take them home. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. But there's going to be those who have rejected him who will remain here on earth. And it's going to be horrible. It's going to be frightening. And as bad as it will be, folks, understand, like, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what hell will be like. And what I hope some of this does for us is acts as a great reminder that these things are real. We don't have time to waste. We, we see stuff that's happening in our world today, and I'm more and more convinced, like, it's going to happen, like, any second now. I don't know when Christ will return, but it's got to be close. What are we going to do with the time he's given us? What are we going to do with the relationships he's given us? What are we going to do with those who don't know Christ that we know don't know Christ? Like, I hope like this stuff begins to, to, to grab a hold of us and remind us this is real. And we got to do something about it. Like, if we love these people, we're going to share Christ with them. All right, we've gone way too late, so let's pray. Lord, this morning I pray that 
as we come to the very end, time of our invitation, that you just, you just work on our hearts. I don't, know, I don't know what people may be struggling with. For some, maybe it, it is just that reminder that you, you know what we don't. Like you're in control, you know that, you know what's ahead. And maybe you're calling some of us to do something that seems radical, that seems life-changing, that seems difficult or hard, and it may not be enjoyable. You've called us. And maybe you keep coming back and we keep pushing you away. Or maybe if there's some today that, that honestly would say, I'm, I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. I, if, if Jesus was to return right now, like I, I wouldn't, I'd be sitting in my seat still. And we, we rejoiced that we had three kids this last week at Vacation Bible School come to accept Christ as their Savior, get saved. We rejoice in that, Lord. And we would love to rejoice in more. So Holy Spirit, just do a work right now. Just, just work in our hearts. And if I've muddied any waters with anything I've said, God, I pray that you give them clarity. Help them to find clarity in you, not me, but in you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.